0: You're listening to The Drag. It's March 12th, 2018, just 10 days after a package bomb exploded on 39-year-old Stefan House's porch, killing him. Police have treated Stefan's death as an isolated incident. The South by Southwest Festival has officially kicked off in downtown Austin. It's an annual festival with 10 days of live music, movie premieres, and media conferences that draw in over 400,000 attendees from around the world. The festival, which locals shortened to South By, fills every hotel room in Austin, and packs every bus, Uber, and sidewalk with tourists. Local restaurants and food trucks have lines snaking out their doors filled with attendees waiting for a taste of Austin cuisine. Usually, that means tacos. In 2017, the year before the bombings, the festival generated nearly $350 million for the Austin economy. It's huge for the city, and attendees look forward to it every year. Locals have a love-hate relationship with the festival, though. The roads are busy, bars and restaurants are packed, it's really hard to get anywhere in the city when South by is in town, so most locals keep their distance from downtown. They pretty much go about their daily lives. About five miles east of downtown, around 6:40 a.m. in East Austin, 41-year-old Shamika Wilson and her 17-year-old son Draylyn Mason are getting ready to go work out together. Their family is close, so close. They couldn't live without Draylen's grandmother, Sandra, under the same roof. Shamika's neighborhood in East Austin, about 12 miles south of the scene of the bombing that killed Stefan House, is a rapidly gentrifying part of Texas's capital city. White urban professionals, hip bars, and expensive apartment high-rises permeate most of East Austin. But this neighborhood has mostly been left alone. It's quiet with bright green lawns, towering old trees, and low, wide brick homes that keep Austin's skyline in view. Many of the residents are black or Latinx. By her front door, Shamika has a ring doorbell, one of those cameras activated by a button or by motion in its range of view. A man crouches down in the bushes in the front yard, making sure the camera didn't detect his motion. He pushes a brown package on the front porch, close to the door, then leaves. The camera never caught him. I'm Ashley Miznazi, and this is the second episode of Darkness, Season 2, about the serial bombings in Austin, Texas, 2018. Discipline runs strong in Shamika and Draylen's family. Draylon's talent and wisdom impress everyone he meets. Friends say he's artistic, passionate, and has an old soul. At 13, he won a contest showcasing an essay he wrote about racial profiling in his community. Now, as a senior at East Austin College Prep, a 15-minute walk away from his home, He performs in several chamber and mariachi groups to bring art and music to low-income communities. He spent a week one summer studying double bass at the Interlochen Center for the Arts in Michigan and currently sits principal chair in the Austin Youth Orchestra. He dreams of being a neurosurgeon, but he has already received an offer to study double bass under world-renowned music professors at the University of Texas and he's applied to other prestigious music schools. This evening, like many evenings, he will probably practice for hours for his next chair test. Draylin's grandmother, Sandra, is still in her bedroom as Shamika and Draylin prepare to leave the house for their workout. When he opens the door, Draylin notices the package on the porch. It has their address on the top. Draylin picks up the package and brings it inside the house setting it down on the kitchen counter. Curious about what has been delivered, Draylon and Shamika open the box together, setting off a violent explosion that rips through the kitchen.
1: Oh That's 911. Do you please fire EMS? Oh, I need an EMS, please. Okay, hold on.
0: The package explodes with a force powerful enough to blast the granite kitchen countertop to rubble. Shrapnel rips through the wooden cabinets and nails pierce through the white walls, filling the air with
2: debris.
0: The explosion shakes Sandra in her bedroom. She scrambles into the hallway to see what happened, and she's met with a pool of blood at her feet. She sees Shamika, wailing in pain, deafened from the blast. Beside her, Draylon is bleeding from his hands and face. As debris settles in the air, Sandra sees the walls and ceiling of her kitchen collapsing. The house is barely recognizable. It looks like a war zone. The smoke detector shrieks in the background. Sandra feels trapped. She doesn't want to step forward afraid she might slip in the pool of blood. Sandra shelters herself in her room on the phone with a 911 operator, but she can't concentrate. Her daughter, Shamika, is screaming. The smoke detector is beeping, and all she can see is blood all over the floor.
3: Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, they're on their way. This has not slowed them down at all. The two people are in our hearts. Are they having any difficulty breathing?
1: Yes, my grandson.
3: Okay. Does he have difficulty speaking between breaths? Yes, he's moaning. Okay. Okay. What parts of the body were burned or injured?
1: Yes, everybody. We got two people injured here, please. Okay. What part of the body?
3: Hands, face. I don't know. I got blood all over my house.
4: Okay. They opened a package and it exploded from outside.
0: When emergency crews arrive, Shamika is bleeding badly. Draylin, the 17-year-old musician with a big heart and bright future, is pronounced dead at 7.05 a.m., 20 minutes after the explosion. Sandra is still inside the house, in a back room. The bomb squad begins to get her out safely, but they have to be careful. They aren't sure if there are more bombs waiting, undetonated inside. And Sandra uses a walker, so the bomb squad has to take things slowly. Officer Jay McCormick, a 20-year veteran of the Austin Police Department, works on the bomb squad. He examines Stephen House, the first bombing victim, at the hospital. He's on the scene at Shamika's house. When they get Sandra out safely, she's in shock. She knows what has just happened to her grandson, to her family. Here's Officer McCormick.
1: And out there at the scene, she, I think she kind of knew what had happened and just didn't want to see it and just basically wanted help.
0: Once Sandra is out of the house, the bomb squad gets to work. They had just responded to a similar scene 10 days ago when Stephen House was killed. But since this bomb went off inside Shimika Wilson's home, there was a lot more damage.
1: Messed up cabinets, countertop that big hole in it, stuff everywhere. Just trash, debris, blown up stuff. It was on top of the counter, so basically it was just a huge hole in the counter all the way down the bottom. With everything that was on top, is now on the ground and scattered everywhere.
0: Glass from the oven window scatters the kitchen floor, along with empty storage containers, metal pans, and plastic dishes from the blown-up cabinets. McCormick says the second bomb has completely changed the investigation of the first one.
1: Yeah, so the first bombing was on the 2nd of March, right? And then South By started on the 9th. So with that kind of being like an isolated incident, As we were looking at it then, because we went 10 days with nothing else happened, during that course of investigation, still finding out things, there was nothing to kind of lead us to it being a bigger event that was fixing to go off.
0: Now that there's been a second bomb in 10 days, more investigators from out of town will soon descend upon Austin to try to answer countless questions. Is this related to the death of Stephen House? Did somebody target Stefan's and Draylen's families? Do the two families know each other? And are more bombs out there? Investigators originally thought the explosion that killed Stefan House ten days before was an isolated incident, but that theory no longer holds true. Now there's a second bombing victim, seventeen-year-old Draylen. Both victims were black, in a city where less than 8% of the population is black. The community begins to suspect there's somebody targeting black residents of Austin, and they demanded answers as the investigation unfolds. Austin's NAACP chapter immediately responds to the community's
5: concerns. My name is Nelson Linder, and I'm the president of the Austin NAACP.
0: Nelson Linder has served as the Austin NAACP president since 2000. He grew up during the Civil Rights Movement and has lived in Austin since 1981.
5: My role was to, number one, communicate to the press, talk to the community, let them know what was going on the best I knew, and that we didn't think there was a racial targeting, but at the same time we weren't sure. So you always want to be safe and sorry. So take the precaution assume it is until we know more, because at the time, APD wasn't really communicating because, according to them, they hadn't formed a conclusion or a premise. And that was very problematic. But we just sensed that, that it could be a, a connection to race based on the victims and said, look, let's follow the facts. What do we have? Now? We have two people that are dead in a, in a close proximity, east of R35 in east Dawson, and East Austin, and that's what we have. But nobody really wanted to say that. They kept saying, well, we don't know yet.
0: Nelson Linder knows Draylen's family well. Draylen's grandfather owns one of the top dentist offices in East Austin. Everyone in the neighborhood knows the family.
5: He was highly known in the church community. Most black folks who went to the dentist went to his office, or their office, a partnership. So for many years, he was like the the most prominent, perhaps, dentist in East Austin. And everybody is such a small community. Everybody knew the family based on what he did. And it was just like a household name.
0: At this point... Both the investigators and members of the community try to find links between the families, and they quickly discover there is one, a man named Freddie Dixon. He's the pastor at the church Draylen's family attends and the stepfather of Stefan House. Freddie is married to Stefan's mother, Melanie House Dixon, who you met in the last episode. She's grieving for her son, Freddie is trying his best to offer support. When he hears about the bomb killing a member of his congregation, he's horrified. The bomber struck twice in their tight-knit community, and Freddie felt it wasn't a coincidence.
5: He was terrified, knowing these people, all being within his realm. He felt like too, what there was a message there that he was being targeted.
0: So Freddie hides. He thinks he might be in danger, so he secludes himself in his home. He refuses to speak to the press. He doesn't want to say anything that might encourage whoever is responsible for all of this. Even in 2021, when we asked to interview him, he politely declined. And Freddie Dixon isn't the only person feeling targeted.
5: We're very concerned with people bombing, uh, appeared like African-Americans in, in East Austin and not having any any evidence. The way that affected folks is you you gotta watch everything. You're going outside to get your mail and of course we're a civil rights organization. We could be a target. I think there was a lot of fear and a lot of phobia. And it was just a terrible feeling knowing that somebody was killing people with bombs in the city and very, was very good at it. We had no idea what the motivation was. It was a very uncomfortable time for me and most of the folks that I knew because we didn't have the protection we needed. We just had to be careful ourselves. Like for example even going to your office and turning the key. Everybody was a little bit paranoid about what we were sensing and feeling in this city.
0: Nelson Linder told us that the Austin Police Department's response to the first bombing put East Austin more on edge.
5: I think whenever you have um, the victims involved in you know, black and African Americans, uh, there's a whole different reaction. Uh, of course, we know that in, in this city, in this country, black life is treated as double standard. You know It's all not, not the same thing. I think that their initial reaction reflected how they felt about black life in this city, in the history of racial relations in the city as far as communication. So I think that was status quo. We kind of expected that. But that attitude, in my opinion, hindered the whole investigation because had they came out and not had such a narrow perspective, they might have seen things early on that indicated what was going on.
0: Remember those press conferences after the bomb that killed Stephen House? Interim Chief Brian Manley said they didn't think the bombing was related to a terrorist attack. Assistant Chief Joe Chacon goes further.
4: So um, we cannot rule out that the intent, I mean, it's just too early right now to figure out. Obviously it was intended to harm somebody, but we can't rule out that Mr. House didn't construct this himself and then accidentally detonate it, in which case it would be an accidental death.
0: It sounds like Chacon implies that it's possible Stefan had set up the bomb himself to die by suicide and that Stefan's death was not an act of domestic terrorism. We interviewed Chief Manley a few years after the bombing. Here he is talking about what led Assistant Chief Chacon to imply it could have been Stefan who created the bomb.
3: And to be clear, that is a comment that should not have been made. Uh, the Assistant Chief who made that comment has stated that that was not a comment that should have been made, has apologized for that, um, you know, Early on in the investigation, there were some similarities between some of the components of what were in that device and evidence that was at the home, but these were very common pieces of of common items that would be in any home if you think about what the shrapnel is in explosive devices whether it's nails or screws or bolts you know a lot of times that that is there so that was a comment that was made that was a very hurtful comment that uh, really I think damaged um, the relationships I know that that was uh, very hurtful to the house family and um, you know we've done our best to apologize for that comment to them.
0: Stefan House's mother Melanie is still angry about the investigation, even now, more than three years later. When we met with her, we asked if investigators ever apologize for their handling of Stefan's death. And she said they never did. Melanie actually had some choice words for investigators, particularly the Austin Police Department.
2: I think our Austin Police Department handled the situation very, very poorly and very biasedly. Um, they follow protocol with this situation as they have done historically with African American and, and Hispanic uh, persons of color. Without having viable knowledge and investigational information, they uh, defamed Stefan's character by saying that he possibly could have created the bombing. That was a racial slur. That was a racial profile at the time. Um, not acknowledging the fact that this was ter- a domestic terrorism.
0: But what most of the community didn't know at the time is that investigators actually were looking into the domestic terrorism angle. Early in an investigation, officials can't rule out anything. FBI agent Jason Hudson is a supervisory special agent of the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Austin. You'll hear a lot more from him later, but he's working with his counterterrorism team to figure out what's really happening.
4: We were looking at terrorism just because, quite frankly, that's the only thing that made sense. So uh, as if you've read those statutes, though, and something that we struggled with, when you look at a hate crime are talking about a use of force or violence targeting a specific individual or group specifically due to their race, their color, their uh, national origin, their sex, uh, their um, gender identity, disability, etc., cetera. And that a lot of times these acts of violence are done in order to prevent them, the victim, from participating in a federally protected activity, meaning having a job, going to school, participating in a um, religious event. With terrorism, similar, is you have an individual that uses force or violence in order to uh, try to affect change or um, intimidate a population or a government. With both of these, you have an ideology. And since we did not know who the subject was, it was hard to determine what that ideology was and why they were committing these acts against these individuals. So a lot of our focus in the beginning was victimology, looking at the victims and trying to determine the similarities and the connections between these victims to determine if we did have an act of terrorism or if we did have a hate crime.
0: The morning of March 12th, hours before the explosion that killed Draylon Mason, Interim Chief Brian Manley had been up all night. Around midnight, he got a call about an officer-involved shooting in South Austin, unrelated to the bombings. Whenever an officer is involved in a shooting of any kind, the investigation is lengthy. So Manley stayed on the scene and worked with his officers until 5 a.m., he decided there was no point in going home, so he drove back to the Austin police headquarters to start his day. That's when the call came in about the bomb at Draylen's house that morning.
3: I uh, immediately loaded up and, and and responded to the scene and uh, saw, you know, again, very similar to what I had seen at the first explosion. Evidence that a bomb had gone off, although in bombing number two, most of that was inside uh, because that bomb actually exploded in the family's kitchen. And uh, the debris field obviously didn't do uh, much as far as exiting the home. But it was obvious that you don't have two explosions like that, both the result of IEDs, and not know that they're connected some way or somehow.
0: Again, bombings aren't common. So two bombings in 10 days mean they most likely are connected. Manley wants to communicate the danger to the public immediately. But he doesn't want them to panic.
3: And so it was walking that fine line of trying to heighten everyone's awareness without alarming them to the point of panic.
0: And remember, thousands more people are in Austin than usual for the annual South by Southwest Festival. Most of South By is held downtown, 12 miles from where the first bomb exploded, but just about five miles away from the home where Draylon Mason lived. The idea that this was all happening during what is arguably Austin's busiest time of the year put the city on edge. Here's Manley delivering a press conference the day Draylin was killed, letting the city know to be cautious.
3: If you see a suspicious package on your porch or somebody else's, let us know. We do not believe that this package here today was left by any of the official mail delivery services, whether it be the United States Postal Service, UPS, FedEx, or DHL.
0: While investigators continue to examine the blast scene, civilian FBI analyst Jordana Nesvog is at the hospital.
2: So I am an intelligence analyst with the FBI, and I've been with the FBI for almost 15 years and have worked a pretty wide range of different violations. I started out with white collar and moved on to gangs and drugs and and then violent crimes and working crimes against children. Um and then by the time that I was in Austin, I I ended up on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which includes both international terrorism Violations as well as domestic terrorism violations.
0: Agent Nesvog is like your stereotypical crime TV show heroine. You know the type. Quirky, humble, and incredibly smart. Throughout our entire interview, she credited everyone else for their hard work. But everyone we've talked to told us she's the one who deserves all the credit. You'll hear from Agent Nesvog more later. She's absolutely vital to the investigation. But right now, she's analyzing the two surviving victims of the blast that killed Draylen.
2: And so that was was a new experience for me to be collecting evidence from, you know, an environment where we had a victim, but we had multiple victims, victims that were fighting for their lives. And so collecting evidence from a trauma room where somebody had, you know— had, had just been in there with doctors and everybody trying to save her life, that was, you know, it, it just brought it way closer to home than I, than I probably had experienced before. I remember being somewhat numb or just in shock, like, oh, wow, like we are, we are in it now. And um, yeah, going into that trauma room, I was collecting evidence that had come in on a victim's body like it was in her clothing and that was that really struck me um in in a way that i hadn't experienced before
0: the process of gathering evidence from a victim's body is a tedious one as with any explosion there are many pieces of evidence often quite small but they're all vitally important
2: i was the photographer Uh, but we we carried out pretty much all the rules that needed to be carried out. So it was just a matter of uh, photographing, you know, the clothing that she had been wearing. And then all of the the evidence that we were taking away from that was basically bits of shrapnel. So um, pieces of um, little bolts or screws, um, nails. And so it's, when you're looking for evidence that's small, you know, obviously everything that you move or uh, we, when we laid out her clothing for photographs and everything, you know, those pieces of evidence you have to track down, you have to keep hold of, you figure out how to collect them so that they're not, um, you know, going to fall out of an evidence bag or anything.
0: As FBI agent Vog collects evidence, she stays out of the way of the doctors rushing to care for Shamika's right arm. It's badly injured from the blast. But more than the long-term physical effects, the emotional damage is what takes its toll on Shamika and Sandra and their friends and family. Draylen Mason is dead at 17. Someone has extinguished his promising future. More than three years after the bombings, Chief Brian Manley mourns Draylen. When we talk to him... On his last day of work before his retirement in March 2021, he got choked up talking about the 17-year-old lost way too soon.
3: Draylon was a, an amazing young man at the beginning of his life. He had so much promise. He was a tremendous musician. He was a martial artist. He was that all-American kid that any parent would wish that their child was. And he was taken in such a violent way, in such a senseless way. And we were unable to do anything about that. He
0: even keeps a photo of Drelin in his office.
3: And uh, I very carefully and intentionally wrapped that candle in in, in in protective paper and all of that because that will stay with me forever. And wherever I end up next, I will I will pull that out again. I don't ever want to forget that.
0: You're hearing music played by Draylen right now, and we'll hear more throughout the episode. Draylen didn't know it at the time of his death, but he'd been accepted to the prestigious Oberlin Conservatory of Music. His family received his acceptance letter days after he died. And shortly after his death, the Austin Youth Orchestra dedicated its spring concert to Draylen. When Draylen was killed, Austin classical radio station, KMFA was raising money to move to a new studio space. According to news reports, two local philanthropists made a sizable donation, which gave them the honor of naming the new space. But they weren't sure what to call it. They were still mulling it over on the day Draylen died. Many people at the radio station knew Draylen from his work at the Austin Youth Orchestra and Austin Soundwaves, a youth music program. The philanthropist befriended Draylen's mother, Shamika, and nearly three years after the bombings, the new KMFA building was unveiled as the Draylen Mason Music Studio. Draylon's memory lives on elsewhere in Austin. There's a colorful portrait of him playing the double bass painted on the side of an electric box at the intersection of Pleasant Valley and Weberville Roads in East Austin. The artist, Mike Johnston, posted a photo of the artwork to Instagram a month after Draylen's death. The photo caption is a quote from one of Draylon's family friends, Darren Boyer. It reads, quote, God's heavenly orchestra needed another bassist, so he plucked the best one we had. A year after Draylon's death, the Austin Youth Orchestra held a tribute concert in Draylon's memory. Austin Mayor Steve Adler declared that day, March 3rd, 2019, as, quote, Draylon Mason Tribute Day. The orchestra also established a scholarship in Draylen's honor, and Austin Soundwaves established the Draylen Mason Fellows Program. Draylen went to East Austin College Prep, a small charter school with about 90 people in his class. He and his friends were all go-getters. They enrolled in higher-level courses that could give them college credit. They wanted to ensure they would graduate with a decent GPA. And not have to worry about the financial stress of taking required base-level courses their first year of college. Jasmine Lopez was one of these friends. She met
6: Draylen back in middle school, and it it was actually pretty fun because we got to get closer together while we were taking those classes because they were so intense. So we would have study groups in and outside of school. And we actually had a study group uh, at his at Draylen's house once. And it was fun. And to be honest, we really didn't study. We were just hanging out. School started
0: at 8.15 and was a 15-minute walk from Draylon's house. But he would always be the kid who barely misses the first bell. And each morning, he had a Dr. Pepper in his hand. Draylon always made his class laugh,
6: even during grueling school presentations. I remember our humanities professor wanted us to present our papers almost like every week which was too much for us so he would get up and just wing it and he would also do this thing with his hands he had really really big hands but he would just like clap like whenever he was like up there like giving a presentation just like clapping we would always be like there's Jalen. Sometimes all the pressure from school got a little too intense
0: Jasmine told us about the time she got a low score on the math section of her SATs one of the exams high schoolers take before applying to college. So she panicked. She didn't know what to do, but she knew where to go. to Draylin, whose supply of comfort and encouragement never dried
6: out. He gave me lots of words of encouragement and made me feel better, and that was the type of person he was. He was always there to encourage you and lift you up. He was never a mean person. I mean, I feel like everyone who remembers him remembers him as... Someone who was very sweet and kind and cheerful and always smiling. They spent a lot
0: of time with each other. People even joked that the two were dating, which Jasmine has made clear they're just best friends. Friends described Draylin as a kid who could do it all. His ambition and ability were obvious to everyone he met. Every time Jasmine ventured off into the orchestra room to meet friends before school, he would be there slapping the bass or gracefully scaling the piano keys or fiddling away at the violin. Everyone knew about his love of music, but not everyone knew he loved to dance, too.
6: Well, our school was a church before you know before it became our school, and we had this huge auditorium with all these pews, and this big stage, and sometimes I would walk into the auditorium to get ready for my cheer practice, and he would just be up on the stage making up his own moves. Draylen and Jasmine
0: took the same history classes from 7th to 12th grade. But their friendship especially grew in the 11th grade when they signed up for a class trip to volunteer in Thailand. They spent lots of time outside of school together fundraising for the
6: trip, and it was one of their first times out of the country. I remember walking around the temples with him. I always had him by my side. Like, I always just wanted him to be with me because he'd always make me laugh. And when we got to Thailand, it was extremely hot, and I was running low on money, and I was super thirsty. And he went to a vendor, and he got me a drink. And I was like, that's that's very sweet, which also reminds me of him buying snacks for... The children at the school we were volunteering for, he was constantly buying them snacks, and they would always come up to him for snacks, and he would never say no.
0: More than three years after Draylen's death, Jasmine still goes through her own rituals to keep his memory alive. Their high school friend group throws a party each year on May 26th, Draylen's birthday. They all drink Dr. Pepper, because it was his favorite. They often scroll through Draylen's old Instagram posts and reminisce.
6: He touched so many of our hearts, and of course we'll never forget him. I feel like his memory will live on for so many years because of the great impact he's made in everyone's lives. And I'm glad his memory still lives on in the Austin community and in our friend group. I think it's important for Austin to remember that We lost a really important member of our community that day. He just had so much potential. And we all knew that he was going to leave high school and do many great things and go to a great college and continue to pursue music and probably venture out and do many other things like dance. Who knows what? Like I said, he could... Pick up an instrument and automatically play it. He could get on the stage and just amuse everybody with his talent. I think it's important for Austin to remember how great of a person he was.
0: Next, on Season 2 of Darkness...
4: Austin 911.
1: Do you need police, hey, fire, ambulance? I got my vision. My that was an explosion. The policeman. And said, What happened, ma'am? And I said, I picked up a box and and, and it exploded.
0: Season two of Darkness is reported, hosted, written, and directed by me, Ashley Misnazzi. This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. Katie Penchik outka and Robert Quigley are the executive producers. This podcast was also reported and written by Kenny Jones. The editor is Katie Penchik outka the associate producers are Austin Cheatham, Libby Cohen, Alexandra Curry Buckner, Cecilia Garzella, Gregory Gonzalez, Anastasia Goodwin, Jake Herman, Jackie Ibarra, Marian Navarro, Ileana Rowland, Sarah Schleed, Aidan Snazdell, and Harrison Young. Their artwork was created by Helen Holsey. Christian McDonald is the drag's technical director. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. I also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Emily Quigley, Jay Whitman, Eric Tang, Robert Vilwock, and Ryan Outka. Special thanks to Grace Spees, Marcus Crumb, Raul Garcia, Dylan Lee, Jennifer Robbins, Tasha Turner, Amanda Cisneros, Jenny Nelson-Gray, and Tiffany Ma. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com/donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.